0: we read together from Matthew 2, verses 13 to 18, or text. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he had realized that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, this passage that we just read contains two references or two commonalities, and it's a refrain uh, that we see here uh, to both passages. It says something like this: "This happened to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets." This happened. This language of fulfillment. There's a story that's previous that is speaking into the story that we just read, and this pattern, this language of fulfillment, happens ten times in the Gospel of Matthew, and three of them are right here in this passage. So the first part of the passage that we read was uh, Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt. So he's born, if you remember the story, in Bethlehem, and now he and his family have to run away to Egypt. The second story, the second part of the passage we read, is called the murder of the innocents, where Herod comes and he kills all of these babies. A very tragic and and, uh, difficult passage. And then the third passage, which I didn't read just because it didn't fit into uh, our time this morning, is where the family returns back They come back and they go to a place called Nazareth. And like I said, just like the piece that Deborah played, it's an invitation for us to go backwards and hear what do these sounds and these stories of doom, do they have anything to say to us today and learning the context. So let's take a look at the first passage first. Uh, So if you remember the story of Jesus' birth, the Magi have come, They uh, they have given their gifts to Jesus, they've blessed him. And then Joseph has this dream uh, as we heard in the passage, that Herod, the king who is ruling at the time, we took a look at his story last week, that he's going to come and kill Je- maybe Jesus. And so the angel tells them that they need to flee. They need to get out of there and go to another country, Egypt. And then we see verse 15. It says, they stayed there. They stayed in Egypt until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. There's that language. Out of Egypt I called my son. So what's the backstory and what's the reference here that Matthew was trying to get us to understand? Well, this is a, a reference from Hosea 11, and this is the, the Hosea 11 one. This is what the passage says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So that's the original passage. So Jesus' birth is happening here in time. We're going back to Hosea, who lived a couple hundred years probably before Jesus. And he's referencing a story that goes even farther back to the beginning of the story of the Bible. And so I'm gonna to try to quickly help us with that. The start of the story of the Bible is that God creates people as his images, he calls them, that we are, we are made to reflect this creative and shalom, peace-giving God uh, into the world. That's our job as human beings. But the people fail. But the good news is that God doesn't give up. He, he stays with people. And so he chooses this person, Abraham. We saw his story starting in the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter. He's the first person mentioned in, in Jesus' genealogy. And he says, through your family, I'm gonna keep going. I'm going to use your family and bless you. And through you, you're gonna bless the rest of the world. And, and Abraham's family eventually ends up in a place called Egypt. If you guys have ever heard of you know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, there's a, his story comes in between there. But his family's in Egypt. And then they grow, but eventually they get enslaved because the Egyptians are afraid of these growing these people who are growing and being very successful. So they enslave the Israelite people. And uh, God calls this other person, his name is Moses. He says, through you, I'm going to liberate my people. And so he leads them out of Egypt. And we'll look at that story in more detail next week. And so it's this beautiful story of salvation. That's what Hosea is referring to here. The story where God has been faithful, even though there's failure of people, that he's liberated his people from slavery. So when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But how did the story go from there? So we started at the beginning. We're at the place where Israel has been led out of Egypt. And Hosea is writing here in time. So what is the story between those two times? He continues in Hosea 11. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. If you know the story of Israel leaving Egypt, they're calling back and they're saying like, oh, I just remember being in Egypt. It wasn't that bad. We had meat, we had onions and leeks. Like if you're Asian, if you can't, don't have those things, you can't cook at all. Like, I don't know what you would even cook with. And they're just kind of complaining the whole time, even as God has pulled them out. So Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols, this idolatry language that we looked at from last week. But then this is how God talks about his people. He says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. And God's using parenting language. If any of you have young kids, you know you have this baby, like God said, I called my child out of Egypt. I saved him. And then I taught him to walk. Those first few steps are some of the most joyous and fun, memorable moments of parenting. And then God switches to shepherding language here. He says, I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Just this beautiful picture of God shepherding his people. But my people are bent on turning from me. So that creates this tension. What will God do? He loves his people. He's like their father, like their parent, like their shepherd, but the people keep turning away. So the, the passage continues. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These are two cities that are very close to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that was a place that was judged and was destroyed in the story of the Bible. And so God is saying, how could I I destroy you even though you're just as, as wicked and you turn away from me like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have done? He says, he closes the passage by saying, I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger, and I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. So here we get a peek in this passage at the dilemma at the heart of the relationship between God and Israel. God loves them. It's made super clear in this passage. He loves them like a son He shepherds them, he cares for them, he saves them and calls them out, but they continually walk away from God and worship other idols. And the picture of how God responds is so important for us to hear and understand. See, God is pouring out his brokenheartedness through this passage, through the the prophet Hosea. He's a vulnerable God. You know, this is the nature of relationships in the Bible. We talked about this last week. That to be human, the vision of what it means to be human in the Bible is to be vulnerable. And any time we put ourselves into relationship with each other, that's ultimately what we're doing. The closer the relationship, the more vulnerable you're becoming with that person. Marriage is one of those relationships. I know a pastor who, uh, I don't know if he starts it, but every time he does premarital counseling, he says, you are now introduced to the person who's going to hurt you probably the most in the world because it's a vulnerable relationship. You're opening yourself up to that person in the most full way. And God opens himself up to these Israelite people in this way. He said, I am your God, you are my people. I will be with you no matter what, I will be faithful. And that means he's opening himself up to being hurt. And that's what he's pouring out in this passage, just hurt. He's picking up on all these themes from the song that Deborah played, these just themes of grief and sadness and anguish. And he's inviting us into that through the prophet Hosea the story of anguish of this son that he absolutely loves. And I hope this challenges some of the caricatures I think we have as of God, at least I, I know that I have, carry in my life when I think of God. Because sometimes the first thing that comes to mind when I think of God is like, he's this angry, angry, vindictive God that he's just waiting to kind of get me. You know, and if I say, oh my God, instead of, oh my gosh, like I just slipped up and then God's just like, boom, something's gonna happen to you. Or you know another caricature I think that we have is that the the God of this the Old Testament the story before Jesus he's just angry vindictive bloodthirsty God and then Jesus is like all love he's just like you know peace love and happiness Jesus and this passage challenges that perspective for us it's this God just pouring out his heart to us and I want to try to give us some more language and understanding of how this how God conveys emotion in this language. Because I think none of us, as I mean, I can't tell, but I doubt any of us are shepherds here. And uh, this language is archaic. It's old. It's very old language. And so it doesn't, even though it's trying to convey God's heart, I think it can, we can miss it a little bit. And so I want to bring in another, another voice, a modern equivalent, I think, may, maybe a situation we can relate to more easily. And it's of, of this woman. Her name is Catherine Ketchum. She's an author, American author. She's written many books. She's actually a specialist on addiction. Um, But this book that I'm going to quote from is a book where she's speaking about her son, Ben. And it's her own personal story and, and his story of addiction and how it affected their family. And so it starts with them at the treatment center. And I just want you to listen for the emotion in her story. How she describes it. And of course, it's not a one-to-one of how God feels, but it might touch us, I think, in the same way. So it's just this long passage. It's not going to be up in the screen. I just encourage you to look and just to listen as I read it. She writes: Something has happened to Ben. His beautiful red hair, the color of brick dust, is cut short, so short that the overhead fluorescent lights seem to shine off his scalp. I look in his eyes and I see distance. I want a hug. His big arms wrapped around me, my head turned to the side, buried in his chest. He's nearly a foot taller than me. I'd hold on tight, repeating the words I always say after a big hug when he starts to pull away and I hold on. Sometimes I don't want to let go. And maybe he will say what he used to say. I love you, Ma. Maybe we'll be as we once were once upon a time a long time ago. It's January 2006 and our family is participating in the family week at an inpatient program in Montana. The counselor asks us to introduce ourselves. Tim, white-haired and blue-eyed, is the first to speak. My son, Brian, he begins, his chin dropping to his chest. He tries to speak but no words come and the tears flow down his cheeks. My son, Brian, he begins again as a heroin addict. He starts sobbing, I'm sorry. He manages to say, wiping at the tears with the back of his hand, I'm so sorry. His wife Susan takes his hand and continues. My husband Pat and Ben's two older sisters and I struggle through our tears as we remember the way that Ben used to be before drugs and how he became a person we barely know. While the questions family members of addicts ask may differ, the feelings of guilt and shame are universal. Guilt for what we did or didn't do, said or didn't say, Shame for our imperfections and limitations, because even with all our endless expressions of love and concern, we couldn't wrestle our children free from this demon of addiction. No matter how hard we fought, the addiction always seemed to win, leaving us alone with our anger, frustration, fear, helplessness, hopelessness. I remember five years ago in the spring of 2001 when I picked up the phone, so sure of myself, so confident in my skills as a loving, compassionate parent, just to hear the middle school principal tell me that Ben had been found with drugs. No, not possible, not my Benny. My hands shook as I held the phone. I couldn't speak, couldn't think. I realized I was holding my breath, but I couldn't breathe. I could feel my heart pounding against my ribs. It had to be a fluke, a dare, a risky adventure with no thought about consequences. Ben was only 12 years old. Freckles, beautiful red hair, Smart, kind, thoughtful, gentle. Every day when I dropped him off at school, he leaned over to kiss me and he never failed to say, I love you. That night when we talked, his face was red with shame. I'll never use drugs again, he said, his voice shaking, tears streaming down his face. And I believed him. And even as his behavior changed to that of aggression and hostility, I found excuses. He's an adolescent, I thought. Of course, he has mood swings. Other kids make fun of his red hair and his freckles. Bullies push him, punch him, steal his backpack. He tells me everything, or so I think, when he stops talking to me. I think it's a good sign that he's establishing his independence. We've been so close, and of course he needs space and distance. I should have seen the signs. I should have known how to handle a drug problem in my own home after all. I was the expert writing multiple books on the subject of addiction, but I didn't see it coming. And when I did, I was clueless about how to stop it. He blamed us, I hate you and dad, I hate your rules and the way you interfere with my life. And I shot back, what about you? Your language, the anger and the holes in our walls? Is that our fault? But the silence was worse, walking past each other, leaving for school without a goodbye, no kisses, no hug, squeeze, big fat moosh. And then the arrests for possession started Assessments, treatment, counselling, promises to quit, promises broken. I return to that circle of strangers, picturing the treatment centre and the snow falling outside in huge flakes. And I see Tim's tears. I listen to Steve talk about his divorce and his fears that he's responsible for his son's drug use. I look into Susan's eyes and I see my own fear and pain. And I hear my husband a man of few words express his deepest longing. I just want my son back. This is the language of Hosea. This is what Matthew is trying to point to, that God's story is this kind of a story. It's a story of grief. It's a story of loss. It's a story of addiction and being torn and broken relationship. And by speaking these words through Hosea, he's trying to say the same thing that Catherine Ketchum is saying, to communicate his pain to us, to open up and be vulnerable with us, and just pour it out in an invitation for us to see what idolatry does to the heart of God and how torn it makes him feel. And there's one more interesting thing about this passage from Hosea before we move on, is that by putting it in this story... Matthew is placing the person of Jesus right in the middle of all of this pain, all of this tornness. Richard Hayes uh, says it this way, He's he's a commentator, Jesus becomes the one in whom the fate of Israel is embodied and enacted. The story of Israel and the story of Jesus become one and the same. And so it has this huge question for us that it leaves us hanging with in the Gospel of Matthew if this now is Jesus' story, the thing that we just read of God who has this son, but the son goes wayward and God wants to pour out his anger, but won't, it makes us ask, should make us ask the question, how will Jesus fit into this story as God's son? Will he be a faithful son or will he be a wayward son? And what will happen to this wayward son? What will happen to the Israelites who have fallen into idolatry again and again? What will happen to those of us who are unfaithful with God again and again, and how will that resolve? And that's the invitation to the Gospel of Matthew, is the invitation to this story, the story of love and grief and vulnerability and God pouring out his heart to us, and something special is going to be fulfilled, something is going to happen in this person, Jesus. That's the invitation to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, that's the first passage. Now let's take a look at the second passage that we have here. And this uh, part is a, a series, or it's part of a series in a very disturbing narrative that comes in the Bible. It's the murder of children, the murder of the innocents, this passage is called. And just like Deborah played, you know, she had the theme, and then there were variations on the theme. This story, very sadly, is one that is a theme that is played out throughout the Old Testament through the story of Israel, the story of children being killed, innocent people being killed. And and very sadly, that variation repeats into our world today. And I want to reiterate what I said last week. The Bible is really, really clear that idolatry, which is what Herod is doing, he's trying to become invulnerable and grasp control. Idolatry in the Bible is always violent and it always causes injustice. It takes its power out on those who are least vulnerable. And that's what we see in this story. It says Herod flies into a rage. He's enraged because he doesn't have control, and he knows that he's vulnerable now to this new king who has been born. And so he takes it out on these vulnerable babies. And it's a really, really difficult story, but it speaks to what the Bible says, that idolatry at its heart is always violent. Now, here's what it says at the end of the passage, after it talks about the murders of these children. It says, then what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. So Again, it's hearkening back to a previous story. And I don't know about you, but this causes some, some problems for me uh, when I first read it. Because it makes it sound like, long time ago, God said these things. He promised that some children would die. And so basically, some children had to die so that Jesus could come and that he, we would know that he's Jesus. In fact, it might have been, we could read it like this. It was his plan. It was God's plan from a long time ago that all of these children would die. And again, it plays into this caricature that I, I know that I can have in my uh, own mind, and I think many of us share this, that God is kind of like this distant, you know, uh, robotic chess player. He's very uninvolved, and he's kind of this angry God. He's just messing around with human life, and he doesn't really ultimately care. We read this story, and we think of these beautiful boys who probably, well, who, who did die, and, and we just read it in almost like this cold and calculated way. And we attribute that to God. Like he's just this distant God who doesn't really care about anything that's happening. And so I don't know about you, but that makes it really difficult for me as a person who wants to understand the story of the Bible. Like I want, I know that this is, this is the path for me to understand God, but it makes me really not want to jump into the story. It makes me not want to wrap my arms around this kind of a God if that's who he is. And so we need to look at this passage more closely. What is Matthew actually saying when he's using this language of fulfillment here of this terrible tragedy that's happened? Well, let's look at the passage closely. This is what it says. A voice, this is what's been fulfilled. A voice was heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be cons- consoled because they are no more. So it comes from Jeremiah, and the context of this passage is that the people have been committing idolatry once again, so this pattern is continuing on again, and God is sending them out into exile. And uh, there is a mother that's weeping for her child. In the story of the Bible, Rachel is a really important character. She comes pretty early on in the book of Genesis, so the first book of the Bible, and she is a woman who dies in childbirth. And so in uh, Hebrew, the mindset of he- Hebrew people, she becomes this woman who any time that children uh, die or there's some problem with uh, childbirth, she is the woman that they associate with and they see her as weeping for them. And so in this passage, as the people of God are getting sent out of their country, we're probably seeing people that are killed and we're seeing children that are dragged away from their family. And so Rachel is here weeping for these children, refusing to be Consoled. And we, again, we get this language of just a, a pouring out of grief. The language of Rachel. This is the language of Catherine Ketchum. This is Lily Boulanger's song. The same pattern of grief and exile and tragedy and lament. And so Jeremiah is not saying that what this had to happen, that all these little boys had to be killed so that Jesus could be Jesus, just so some random saying in the past could be fulfilled in Jesus. That's not what fulfilled means at all. Rather, Matthew is is trying to say, this is the kind of world that we live in. These are the patterns that repeat again and again and again in history. And this is the kind of story that Jesus comes into. See, we like to tell the Christmas narrative as a kind of a cleansed narrative. You know, we, we generally don't add these parts into the play. You know, it doesn't end with like Herod killing all the rest of the little boys. I don't know, that would make a very good play. It might be some PTSD for the children uh, if, we, if we did it that way. Um, but Matthew doesn't seem to shy away from the story. It's right here in this narrative. So why? Why would he include this here in the birth narrative of Jesus? Well, let me ask you a few questions. These are just rhetorical questions you don't need to answer. How many of you have something in your life that you're grieving? Maybe some relationships in the past couple years that have been lost. Dreams that you didn't, weren't able to, to have uh, because of these last two years. Are there any circumstances in your world currently that you can't seem to make sense of? anything that you're lamenting in your life? Are there any places in your mind, in your heart, in your family, in your life that Lily Boulanger's song is an appropriate soundtrack? As much as as we might not like it, I think that most of us have these areas of sadness and pain, like Deborah talked about, these these emotions that we avoid, these emotions that we walk away from because they're too dark. And our assumption if you're a follower of Jesus, is to think that in those places of darkness, that's where God is most distant. That those places of lament are places that God is is not present in our lives. And I think partly this is because we believe in something that one uh, pastor calls the myth of religious fulfillment. The myth of religious fulfillment. And the story goes something like this. Jesus has died for my sins, so I invite him into my life. This helps me. Uh, I might be going to hell, whatever you were told, and so I need Jesus in my life. But he's kind of helping me achieve what what I need, which is to get to heaven. And here on earth, like I have all these dreams, and so the point of God is to not get in the way of those dreams, and in fact, to probably help me to fulfill the different dreams that I have. We talked about some of this last week. But what happens when our dreams don't come true? what happens like in this passage when the opposite happens are our nightmares come true. If that's the narrative that's running through our lives, that that's what Jesus is here to do, then the only thing we can say is like, where's God? Where is God in the darkness of my life? Maybe he's absent. And when we call out to him and we pray to him in those situations, often the only thing we can think is God take this terrible thing away from me take it away. And when he often doesn't, which God often doesn't, then we can think like, what a waste of time this whole Christian thing is. Or God is like, he can't do anything. He's weak. And that is the story that we tend to live in. But this passage is trying to poke at this narrative, I think, in our lives and in our culture by showing us that there's a different answer to that question. See, where is God when things get difficult? Where is Jesus in this passage? He's right at the center of it. He's right at the center of this tragedy. God entered into human tragedy. That's what this passage is telling us. This is Jesus' story. It's right here. Again, one person I was, I was reading in preparation, he said this, Jesus was born with a price on his head, and he died with a price on his head. He is not a stranger to tragedy and grief and lament. God has experienced what we've experienced. And the story shows us what idolatry does, again, in our lives. Those places where we try to seize control as individuals or as a culture, those places where we try to become invulnerable, they create violence in our world. But our God is not a God who's immune to that. He's not standing on the sidelines. I often use the analogy of sin as an avalanche that comes and it just pours over us. God is not just standing on far away and watching the mountain and watching the avalanche just pour onto us at a distance, cold, calculated. The picture of Jesus that we get is that Jesus comes into our world and he stands on the mountain with us. He knows what it's like to be snowed under by dark forces. He's, he's absent, or he's not absent, he's present. He's not emotionally distant. He's standing there broken hearted and understands the pain that we go through. He understands the pain of Israel. He understands the pain of our world. And he understands the pain of your life, whatever we're going through. And I know we all have different stories in this room. But despite all of this darkness and this gloom, and and I want to be really clear, God is not glossing over it. He's, he's right there in the middle of it. But despite of all of it, it's not, all is not lost when God is present. That's the other thing this passage is trying to tell us. Let's read the conclusion of, of this quote from Jeremiah. And it's saying, again, even though idolatry has brought this about, even though the people have been unfaithful, and even though they're going into exile, and even though innocent people will be killed, and God is mourning, this is how the passage finishes. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return to their territory. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. The same language of of a father caring for his son. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The cycle of idolatry and walking away. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. See, in the middle of the darkness Whatever darknesses we face in our lives, the places of exile that we're in, we're invited to lean forward into this hope. That's what this quote from Jeremiah is saying, that God is faithful, and he'll always keep his end of the deal. And even though Israel is unfaithful, and even though we continue in these cycles of unfaithfulness and idolatry, God will bring back the exiles and he'll give us new hearts, and he'll write the law on them, and we will be able to know him. That's the great hope and promise of this passage. And in the gospel of Matthew, in the story of God, this theme finds its, its, uh, its place at the beginning of Jesus' narrative, that there's hope that even amidst this terrible dark thing that's happening, that these children are being slaughtered, there's this family that's carrying the Son of God, the promise of hope for us. But it most critically, this theme most critically finds its place at the end of Jesus' story. Because at the end of Jesus' story, we see darkness. If you read the Gospels, you'll notice it even talks about a physical darkness. And Jesus is exiled, he's pushed away from his people and out of the city. And idolatry in that story has once again led to violence. We see this king who's coming to kill. And Jesus cries out in grief and in mourning, quoting these, some of these passages from the Hebrew scriptures, and then he is killed. And it's this moment that seems to be the darkest in the whole biblical story, and many of the people around Jesus feel the same way, that darkness has won once again, and there's no hope for us. And, and for three days, the song that Deborah played for us, just, that's the soundtrack, on repeat for three days. But after three days, something beautiful and amazing happens that light shines once again, and Jesus rises to give us hope. And the story comes to its fulfillment. That's what it means. That Jesus, in Jesus, all of the stories meet their climax, and the dark and sad stories in history are not foreign to God, but Jesus steps into them and also brings us the greatest hope that we can have. Death does not have the word, Christ is risen from the dead, and no matter the darkness that we face in our lives and in our hearts and in our world, there is hope where there is Jesus. And this is the invitation to each of us when we find ourselves in areas of darkness or in mourning in our lives and in the world. The first invitation is to mourn with God, to believe that he's not distant in those moments but that he's actually right there, standing with you in the avalanche of sin that you're feeling and you're experiencing, whether it's your own or someone else's. See him there as a parent mourning over a child, standing there with you, that these passages are drawing us into the emotionality of God and the vulnerability of what it means that our God has tied himself to human beings. And then accept the invitation to take this pattern of Christ's life, who, like I said, started in darkness and ends in darkness, that that's the invitation for us, is to die with Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to see that this darkness in our lives is allowing us to take the shape of his life and to come to the cross with him, to die with him, but not to stay there, but to rise with the hope of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, not with our dreams intact, but to rise as new creations, as, uh, as Jeremiah talks about that God puts his spirit within us, that we might know him and he might write the law on our hearts and that we might be new people by walking with Jesus through his suffering pattern and resurrection, that we might find our sins forgiven and emerge as people who are, can re-engage in the story of God, as people of God, people made in the image of God, resurrected people who now can come, see our God face to face, know him and reflect him, engage in that new work of reflecting him into the world and creating places of shalom and bringing hope in the places of darkness in our world. Let's pray to close. God, I don't know uh, every story in this room, but I know that uh, these stories are written because they touch us in different places and they, they speak to us at different times. So for those of us who are going through Places of darkness. All of us will at some point in time, but for those of us who are going through it now, I pray that you would just minister to us. May the sense that we are not alone, that you are not absent, um, may those be be very true and real. May you minister to us as we respond together now. I pray for those of us who will go through dark times in the future too, that you would remind us of these passages that I think as kind of Western Christians, we tend to gloss over or not really look at, uh, or just give kind of tacit, Um, you know, a belief towards, that they would become robust things, that when we go through those dark times, that we would be reminded that you are with us. And may we as your people see this as an invite, all the darkness in our lives and in our world as an invitation from you to join you in the life of Christ, to come to the place of the cross, the place of deepest darkness, to meet you there. And may through the power of of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, may we emerge as new people, people with hope in the midst of the darkness. I just think of John 1 and what it says, that the the light has shone in the darkness and it has not overcome. And by your goodness and your grace and your glory, would you also make us people that shine that hope out into the world, into our world of darkness, to people, our neighbors, our family, and our friends who need to see some light. May they see your face, may they see this story, and uh, may you bring them great hope. May you drill this into our hearts and into our minds as we respond together in in prayer, in worship, in giving. We pray these things together in Christ's name.